If you've just wandered in off the street and you don't know where you are, um, RUF is a campus ministry and RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. And what that means, Reformed means simply, just to say it simply, Reformed means we love the Bible. University means we love the campus and fellowship means we love the church. Um, And one way that we like to say it is that RUF is a campus ministry where every student is invited to encounter Jesus, to explore faith, to enjoy community, and to be empowered to change. And when we say we're a campus ministry, what we mean is that we're not a Christian club. And what I mean when I say that is that this is a space that is open for all of you, regardless of what you believe. We're glad that you're here. This is a a space for both Christians and non-Christians, Christians and skeptics. If you're convinced of what you believe as a Christian or as a skeptic, we're glad that you're here. Um, If you're curious, you're trying to figure out what it is that you believe and why you believe it, we're we're glad we're here. And we hope that this can be a home for you uh, while you're here at Wake Forest. And during this time at Large Group, what I'm going to do each week is stand up here, and we're going to read some scripture together, and then um, we're going to talk about it a little bit together. I'm going to speak on it together. And um, this semester, during this time, we are going to be looking at and listening to questions from Jesus, questions that Jesus asks, asks us. So why would we spend a whole semester with questions? Well, college, as you know, is a time where you are encouraged to ask a lot of questions. Um, We're encouraged to ask a lot of questions. I had a a professor who um, said that he was less concerned with us getting answers as he was concerned with us asking better questions. And this is because good questions involve you in such a way that if you actually take a question seriously... You allow someone else's purposes inside of your head. If you, let, if you take a question seriously, you are giving the reins to someone else to lead you. If you take someone's question seriously, you are giving up control of where your train of thought would go. And questions are an interestingly vulnerable thing. Right? If you take a question seriously, you have no idea how it's going to impact you. And the Bible knows this. There are about 290 questions from Jesus recorded in the Bible. And Christians believe that Jesus is God. And, and God could have come and just told everyone things. And yet, we see that he instead, or in addition to that, he, he asks these questions. He asks all of these questions. So he sees that questions are, are enormously important. So why is this? Well, questions stretch you. They, they lead you to consider things you might not have considered before. Questions reveal things to you. They make connections where something that was hidden might become revealed. Um, they, they reprove you. Questions correct you in ways that you need to be corrected. And when Jesus asks questions, when he asks us questions, he's inviting us to engage with parts of our lives that we otherwise wouldn't engage with on our own. He's inviting you and asking you, inviting you to learn more about who he is by learning about yourself. And when Jesus asks a question, it's authoritative. And to avoid Jesus' questions is foolish because if you avoid him, you are avoiding some of the most serious, thoughtful, important questions that you can ask as a human. And questions force us to make connections and help us to see things that we wouldn't otherwise see. So we're going to look at 13, about 13 of these questions this semester, one each week as we meet together. And my hope is that we will listen to these questions together, we'll let them stretch us, they'll reveal things to us, they'll correct us where we need to be corrected and, and ultimately, they'll show us God, who God is in Christ. And tonight, we're going to begin with Jesus' first question that he asked in the Gospel of John. The first thing that he says to his disciples in John's Gospel, which is, what are you seeking? Um, one of my favorite authors is a novelist 
was a novelist named Walker Percy. In one of, in one of his novels, Love in the Ruins, um, the protagonist is at a golf course and he trips and he falls into a sand trap. Um, and then he says this. He says he's laying on his back looking, like sand traps around him, he's looking up at the clouds. He says, the sand trap and the clouds put me in a mind of 10 years old and in love and full of longing. The first thing a man remembers is longing, and the last thing he is conscious of before death is the exactly the same longing. I have never seen a man die who did not die in longing. When I was 10 years old, I woke one summer morning to a sensation of longing. Besides the longing, I was in love with a girl named Louise. And so the same morning, I went out to the same sand trap where I hoped chance would bring us together. At the breakfast table, I took a look at my father with his round head, his iron-colored hair, his chipper red cheeks, and I wondered to myself, at what age does a man get over this longing? The answer is, he doesn't. My father was so overwhelmed with longing that it unfitted him for anything but building houses. In 2012, two um, clinical psychologists conducted a study. They were Wilhelm Hoffman and Roy Baumeister. And they conducted a study where they outfitted 205 adults with beepers that went off at randomly selected times. And when the beeper sounded, the subject's job was then to, um, he was asked to pause for a moment and then reflect on the desires that he or she was currently feeling or had felt in the past 30 minutes and then answer a set of questions regarding their desires. And after a week, the, the researchers had gathered more than 7,500 7, samples. And here's what they discovered in their, um, in their research. People are fighting their desires all day long. They wrote this. They said, desire turned out to be the norm, not the exception. Desire is the norm, not the exception. All of us are filled with longing. We're all filled with desire all day long. And this is a question that Jesus puts to his disciples and to us tonight. What are you seeking? What do you want? Um, so if you'll turn with me to the back of your bulletin, or it's printed here, if you can read that. Um, if not, it's on the bulletin. We're going to read John 1, 35 through 42. This is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. So as we talk about this tonight, I want us to look at two things quickly in this passage. First, Jesus' question, and then second, the disciples' response. So first, Jesus' question. What are you seeking? So what are you seeking? What do you want out of life? What do you want out of college? What are you seeking? I find it fascinating that Jesus begins with this question. I mean, I don't think this is how we'd expect this interaction to go down. I think that I would expect the disciples to start following Jesus and Jesus to turn around and notice them and then say something like, oh, good, you've made the right decision. You're following me now. Um, here are my expectations for you. This is what it looks like to follow me. Here are, here's, here's how you do it. Here are the steps. Um, 
I have a friend who told me that a couple years ago he was struggling with anxiety and he started going to counseling and his therapist um, gave him an exercise and she, she gave him a piece of paper and on one side she asked him to write at the top what I think I'm supposed to do. What I think I'm supposed to do. What's expected of me. And then just make a list. Just write out all the things that he was supposed to do. All the things that were expected, expected of him. And then to turn the paper over on the other side, write, what do I want? And these are two very different things. I think if we're honest with ourselves, more often than not, we live in response to that first question. What am I supposed to be doing? I think a lot of you are at Wake Forest because you've spent your life checking off the boxes on the front side of that piece of paper. Like you learned what people's expectations were of you and you met them. And then you created expectations for yourself and you met them. And now you're here in college and whether you just had your first first day of class or your last fall first day of class, a new semester comes with a whole new set of expectations. A whole new set of, of what you think you're supposed to do. So what, what are you supposed to do? What is expected of you? What are the expectations that your parents have for you? Is it grades or achievement or success or just survival? How about your friends? What are your friends' expectations of you? What, how about the expectations that you feel that Wake is putting on you? Um, maybe you think feel that God or the universe has some sort of expectation for you. Or maybe you feel de- weighed down by the expectations you have for yourself or the expectations that your future self has for you. Uh, the other day, a senior was telling me how he's experienced expectations in the culture of Wake. And he said that to get into Wake, every person is a complex person with a number of gifts and interests and identities. But what happens is you come into Wake you were forced to choose some of those interests and live in only a few singular identities. And you end up losing the things that made you you in the first place. There are a unique set of expectations here that say that if you're going to succeed, you've got to leave part of who you are at the door. And I know that many of you feel this. And this is not true, just true of your strengths, but it's true of your weaknesses too. Um, over coffee with a student a few years ago, uh, a student explained, she explained to me how she felt these expectations differently as they pertain to her weaknesses. And she said that Wake Forest devours weakness. She said, if you show your weakness or if you don't meet other people's expectations of you, you'll get eaten alive. She said this is both true in the cla- as, as true in the cla- classroom as it is in the frat basement. Both academically and socially, Wake Forest devours weakness. If you don't live up to the expectations set before you, you'll get eaten alive. In a world full of expectations of how you are supposed to be, Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't do this. Look look with me at verse 38. Look what he does. He turns to them and he sees them following and he says to them, what are you seeking? I want us to see a couple of things here. First, this word see, when it says that Jesus saw them, this is a Greek word that means that he took them in with his eyes. He gave them his full attention and he took them in with his eyes with the implication that, this word means with the implication that one is especially impressed with what they see. How do you think God sees you? How do you think God looks at you? Friends, Jesus sees you in the midst of all of the expectations that are heaped on your shoulders. He sees you. He doesn't size you up. He sees you. He takes you and he's glad to see you. And he asks you, what do you want? So you've got this list of all of the expectations that are on your shoulders, what people have told you you're supposed to do or supposed to be, and a lot of these are good things. 
what you've told yourself what you're supposed to be or do, I want you to turn that piece of paper over in your mind and let Jesus ask you, what do you want? What do you want? In 2016, a senior contributor to Forbes.com interviewed over 700 people and asked them the question, what do you want? And the top answers that she got in response were happiness, money, purpose, fulfillment, peace, and joy. And I would argue that all of us, whether we agree with that list or not, all of us at our deepest core, we all want life. We want life. The thing that we're all seeking in the midst of all of those expectations is life. We want to live. We want to live fully. I mean, that's what purpose, fulfillment, peace, joy, happiness, that's what that's code for, right? That's the a longing to live, to be fully alive. And as you show up to wake this year, what do you want? Like, what are you seeking? What do you want? Is it maybe life, maybe this, like the life for you is just being able to hold it all together, just survive the semester. Maybe, um, maybe life for you, maybe you're, you're, you're seeking to succeed and you're just going to win at everything you do when you're here. So what are you seeking? Like, what brought you here? What brought you here to the green room to RUF tonight? What are you seeking? What do you want? This is Jesus's question to you. And look at how the disciples responded. Look at verse 38. They say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus responds, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him today for about the 10th hour, which means about four o'clock. So Jesus sees them. He looks into their souls and with all of the grace and love imaginable, he draws out this response. And the disciples respond. They say, Rabbi. They, they respond. They use his title. They're saying, you are a person of authority. We want to be with you. We want to be where you are. And Jesus' response is to invite them in. Notice he doesn't force them to come. He doesn't demand them to enter, but he invites them first to come and to see. And then when they come and see, then they enter in and stay with him. They abide with him. So why do these men want to stay with Jesus? There is something in Jesus that is so compelling to these men that they follow him and they want to be with him. So why do they want to be with Jesus? John gives us two hints in this passage. First is Jesus' question to them, his gracious invitation for them to share the longings of their heart with him. And second, at the beginning of this, we are given John the Baptist's testimony, where John says, behold, look, here is the Lamb of God. And what happened in the verses right before what we read is that John the Baptist, he was down at the Jordan River, and he was baptizing people, preparing them for the coming of Jesus. And as he's baptizing, he sees Jesus approach, and he stops what he's doing, and he points, and he looks, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who's take, who takes away the sins of the world. And then our passage is the next day. He's with his disciples. He's baptizing again. And then again, he sees Jesus, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or behold, the Lamb of God, and his disciples leave him, and they go with Jesus. And in the story of the Bible, the Lamb of God, that phrase, the Lamb of God, that, that title, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God is the one who gives life. Let me remind you of the story of the Bible. In the beginning, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he existed in perfect, self-giving, other-centered love, he himself was a community of love, and out of his love, he created life. He created organic life, he created animal life, and at the pinnacle of his creation, he created human life. He made humans, male and female in his image, in order that they might have life in God. He formed man from the dust and breathed life into their lungs. 
But as the story goes, rather than receiving life from God, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sought life on their own. And they listened to the lies of the serpent who told them that God did not love them and that true life was theirs to be grasped, it was theirs to be taken. So they took and ate. Rather than gaining life, they ushered in death. And the Bible calls this sin, trying to find our life in anything other than God. For if life is found in God alone, then our attempts to find God apart, find life apart from God will always lead to death. But the Bible doesn't end there because in response to their sin, God made a promise that he would give them life and he would destroy death once and for all. And he made this promise to Adam and Eve and again to Abraham and again to Moses and Joshua and again to Israel as they were wandering and as they established their kingdom and as in they were in exile, God made this promise to give them life. He made the promise that he would send one who would take sin and death into himself that he might give life to the world. And this is what John the Baptist is talking about when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Because we see the fullness of the promises of God where we see all beautiful things in Jesus Christ crucified for us. When John the Baptist says Lamb of God, he's saying at least two things. First, he's drawing our imaginations back to the Passover. And in the book of Exodus, we're told the story that God's people were enslaved in Egypt and God called Moses to set his people free, to rescue them from slavery. And the way that he did this was he had Moses have his people take a lamb and kill it and eat it and then take the blood and put it on the doorposts of their house. And he said that that night, the angel of death would pass through all of Egypt. And all who had the blood on their doorposts, the, the, um, an angel would come and hover over the door and protect that house. But for every house that didn't have the blood, the angel of death would enter in and kill the firstborn son. And so Israel put the blood on their door, they went to sleep, and the next morning, all the houses that didn't have blood on the door, their firstborn son was killed, including Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh let Israel go. And the second thing that this would have brought to their imaginations is the promise that God makes through Isaiah to his people in Isaiah 53, where he says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, every one of us have gone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. What John the Baptist is saying when he says, behold the lamb of God. He's saying, look at Jesus. The promised one who will give you life. And he will give you life through his substitutionary death. He's talking about Jesus' death on the cross as payment for my sin, as payment for your sin, so that we might be forgiven and have life. Friends, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, perfect life without sin, and he, lived, he died the death that we deserve, taking on the punishment and death that we deserve for our sin, so that we might have life with God in him. On the cross, Jesus took death and sin into his body, so that in his resurrection, he might give you life, real life, eternal life, so when the disciples went to stay with Jesus, when they went, when he said, come and see, and they went and saw, and they entered in with him, they were answering his question by entering into the fullness of life. And Jesus extends the same offer to you. In conclusion, I just want to say a couple things about what this means for RUF. RUF is a place where you can come and see. There's this invitation for you to come and see. Every student to come explore faith and encounter Jesus. 
regardless of where you're coming from, regardless of what you've done, we want RUF to be a place for you to investigate the longings of your heart. At the same time, investigate the God of the Bible to see what, if anything, this God might have to say to you. How his word, his message, his story might actually answer your deepest longings. RUF is a place for you to come and see and it's a place for you to come and stay with Jesus. Jesus makes the audacious claim that true life is found in him alone. And RUF is a community of students who are learning to dwell with Jesus together. So whoever you are, wherever you're from, I want you to know that there's room for you here. Because Jesus doesn't give you a to-do list of expectations. But he graciously asks you the question, what do you want? And he answers the deepest longings of your, of your heart with himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for tonight. Thank you for bringing students back. Uh, Father, thank you for this question. Jesus, thank you that you ask us questions. You, you want to know what it is that we want and that what we're seeking. And we thank you that um, you give us life in yourself. Uh, Lord, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name.